The following interview originally aired on KPOV 88.9 on the Tuesday Point. You can listen to The Point on KPOV each weekday at 9 a.m. on 88.9 FM in Central Oregon and kpov.org. So for our discussion today, we will be talking about the very important issue of substance abuse and recovery during the global pandemic and as we emerge from it. We are very pleased to be joined on Zoom by folks who really know what they're talking about from an educational and professional standpoint. Joining us are, I'm going to give you some info about these folks, Monica Vines. Monica is the programming director or the program director for the Addiction Studies Human Services Program at COC since 2007. Uh, before that, she primarily worked in mental health with a focus on children, trauma, and attachment, and has also sought, taught psychology at COCC. And she noticed a strong or high correlation between trauma and addiction. Also joining us is Brian Hodges, a graduate of both the Certificate in Addiction Studies and the Associate of Applied Science in Addiction Studies at COCC, graduating with high honors both times. Smarty Pants, and has been a professional in the SUD field uh, since 2012, primarily working in outpatient settings. He is currently a supervisor with Best Care Treatment here in Central Oregon. And we're joined by Damian Cusimano, a current student who is graduating in June. His focus is on a more general transfer degree, and he is, in fact, transferring to the Bachelor of Social Work program at PSU. He has taken human services classes for the last year and has a long-term goal of getting a master's degree and becoming a licensed professional social worker. And we're going to ask uh, Damien about this. He's coming back to school after a previous successful career with a desire to support others' growth. So um, let's let's get started. Uh, Monica, can you give us an overview of the Addiction Studies and Human Services Program at COCC and why it's so important right now? The program was started back in 2001. Um, as you indicated, I took over in 2007. And it has been an opportunity for folks who are interested both in um, becoming drug and alcohol counselors, as well as those that um, think that they might want to do counseling or social work to test that out before they start a master's program and invest in, uh, you know, another six years of education or four, four to six years of education for a bachelor's and a master's program. And what we really do is provide the foundational education um, and beginning experience for folks who are interested in starting the work um, and uh create a place for them to start their own self-reflection um, as well as learn the skills necessary to begin to help people um, as they move into the professional world. And how long have these programs been in place at COCC? Uh, they, the Addiction Studies program started in 2001, um, and it has transitioned a little bit over that time to become more inclusive, not just for those who are interested in becoming certified drug and alcohol counselors, but also for those that are interested in a more general human services pathway, um, either for those that are interested in pursuing a degree in counseling or a degree in social work, uh, either in those, those pathways. Um, here locally, we have one at OSU Cascades or at um, through Portland State. They have a branch campus here as well. All right, great. Uh, thank you, Monica. So, uh, Brian, you've uh, you're a double graduate of of these programs, and um, 
have been working professionally in this field. Can you talk to us about what motivated you or inspired you to do this kind of work, and um, and what have been what what have been your experiences so far? Well, the the motivator for me getting to this work is that I'm in recovery myself. So I was in, in active addiction until I was 36 years old. Um, and then once I got clean and started getting my life together, I was looking for a path that fit for me and um, went back to school and, and we took on the addictions track. And so I was really passionate about seeing people be able to learn to recover and get their lives back. And I seen that in my personal life, in my personal recovery, and the people I work with personally. And so I kind of wanted to get involved with that on a bigger scale. Um, what was the follow-up question? <laughs> well, I was just wondering, how, uh, what have been your personal experiences? I mean, it could just be like the, the, the feelings of fulfillment, uh, specific satisfaction you've had doing this kind of work so far? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that all of that, all of the above, right? I mean, it's, it's challenging work. Um, because not everybody we work with uh, is fortunate enough to recover, but it is very rewarding work. I mean, you're not gonna get rich doing this work, that's mm-hmm. for sure, so your heart has to be in it uh, if, if you wanna do this kind of work. And I think for the vast majority of people that I come across that are doing this type of work, um, their heart is in it mm-hmm. entirely, and I think that's what makes the difference. So. All right. Uh, thank you, Brian. So, uh, Damien, I guess basically same question to you. What inspired you to uh, get into this work? Yeah. Uh, and, and first, thanks for having me today. Of course. Um, yeah, thank you. For me, uh, I so when I moved to first moved to Oregon, I was working for a wilderness therapy company. And the group that I worked with primarily was uh, 18 to 35 year olds, uh, SUD groups. And so for me, um, having not really thought that that would be my path, I, I really um, realized how much that stuff is linked to the trauma. And and so for me, working with kids is my kind of the reason I got into it. And uh, I just wanted to better understand where they were coming from so that I could work with them better. And um, so, yeah, that's that's basically where, I, where I'm coming from. All right. And we have a note in your bio that you left another very successful career. I was wondering what, if you'd be willing to talk about what that was. And, and Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I've been a professional musician and a professional oh. tattooer for 22 years. And, uh, yeah, gave that all up to start this path in my life. And that's why we moved here from Philadelphia. So, All right. That's great. Doug. So glad to have you in our uh, our community, Damien. Thank you. And uh, so, Monica, uh, your turn. What inspired you to uh, get into uh, this addiction studies, human services work? I know you have a psychology background. But, yeah. Yeah, so my, I, I knew I wanted to help people from about the time I was 13. Uh, and when I went to college, I got my bachelor's of science in psychology. I had a minor in uh, addiction studies and women's studies, and then went on to get my master's in counseling with a focus on marriage, family, and child counseling. And then when I really started to do the work, um, I was working at a trauma treatment agency. And I, by far, I mean, predominantly I worked with kids, but we also worked with adults. And just the high um, co-occurring elements of addiction and trauma um, were so apparent to me that um, it just felt like we we need more education in our community about addictions. And and then on a more personal level, I can trace addiction back about five generations in my Mm -hmm. family. 
So it's it certainly has some some personal elements in that way as well. Um, but but really professionally, it's it's there's just such a significant connection between um, early childhood trauma and um, then addiction. Um, either, you know, there's addiction in the family um, and or as kids experience trauma, then they go on to use substances to help them cope or manage that, that childhood trauma. Uh, and that that's really, I think if we can get some of that early intervention, early prevention pieces in there, I think we could potentially decrease um, the amount of addiction in the world. But that's a pretty lofty goal, I know. <laughs> <laughs> But that's that's why we're all into into these kind of, this kind of work, right? I mean, I know, oh, we over here in the community radio world too. It's like we're going to change the world. Uh, just have to do the little bits we can and our our pieces of it. Uh, so uh, I guess Monica, maybe we can start with you on this one, and we'll I'd also definitely want to hear from Brian and Damien. And that is um, how has um, substance abuse and recovery been impacted? by the global pandemic that we unfortunately still find ourselves in the grips of? Well, I, I'll speak a little to it, but I, I predominantly probably will defer to Brian since he's in the world and has been in the world, in that world for the last year. Okay. Um, from what I um, understand, primarily anecdotally from um, students and friends in the community, uh, there's been a significant amount of relapse that's happened in the last year. Um, and a lot of the, the social isolation that the pandemic has um, kind of forced us to engage in has been a significant contribution to that, where we're not able to connect together in groups for that support. Um, the, you know, meetings, AANA meetings, and even support groups at treatment agencies have had to transition to being via Zoom or on the phone. And that um, while is something, I think it is, it isn't quite the connection that many people need uh, with having in-person um, support. So I think that's a, that's been a big contribution to that relapse. Um, and I, and I also, again, anecdotally have heard that there has been a significant increase in, um, suicide that's related to, or, um, overdose that's related to relapse as well. Um, but, but again, that's anecdotal. I don't have data to support that, but that's just been, um, some of the personal stories that some, some of my students have shared, um, in the last year and a half or so in the last 14 months. All right, great. So, uh, Brian, yeah, what have you seen different in the pandemic compared to to the work in treatment before that? Well, yeah, there's been a there's been a big difference. I think, um, you know, what what we try to do is, in part, what we try to do is help socialize people when they come into recovery. Is because isolation, I think, is a natural part of addiction. And so we work really hard with getting people around, like Monica was saying, around supportive people or even not just recovery events, but, you know, doing things that they enjoy, recreational, um, things like that. And and then we went into this kind of forced isolation, all of us, right? <laughs> it's like stay home, stay away from people. And it's the exact opposite of what we're trying to cultivate because that's kind of a natural state for, for someone in late stage addiction. They've, they've already self-isolated themselves. Uh, and then you have the additional stressors, right? I mean, 
part of addiction is the inability to process and respond to stress in a in an effective way and so they, they come to early recovery with a ton of stress already around where they're at in life where they're going to go housing employment being clean all of that and then we throw this stressor on top of that and you know as you know, for those of us who are doing somewhat well, we we have felt the additional stress right by the pandemic. It's been stressful for a lot of us. Uh, are we going to keep our jobs? Are we going to keep our house? Are we get toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, it, you know, and some, you know, many of us have a challenge and have to figure out how to address and process that in a, in a pro-social effective way. So then you add that to someone who's got three days clean or a month clean and mm. And it's been really challenging. Um, so, you know, relapse has been really prevalent. prevalent. Um, and that's just one piece of it. And then you take the treatment piece and trying to do two-dimensional therapy, right, which works if you've already got a bond with, with that person and you already have some history and you've built a connection with that person. But attempting to make a connection with someone through Zoom, uh, through, through phone calls, uh, doing you know, drug and alcohol assessments over the phone or through Zoom is really in person. It's really hard to make that connection. And I would say that's one of the most valuable pieces in a, in a therapist, you know, client relationship is building that connection and building some trust, building a therapeutic relationship with that person, which is, you know, it's not impossible on this platform, but it is much more challenging. It also gives, um, it also gives people an opportunity to hide right uh whereas when you're sitting with someone there's body language you can respond to there's you know social cues you can respond to and you lose much of that uh through these platforms so it gives even in a group setting right they're sitting in their own room they're really comfortable they're in their lazy boy right which is you want none of that in a in a in a a healthy group (laughs) and so it can make it can give opportunities for people to hide right in front of you Right and not um, challenge themselves. So it's it's been it's been challenging. Not impossible, but challenging. All right, uh, right. It's so thing. I know that's has has to have been a, a much bigger, stronger, more intense effort on the part of uh, folks like you. So I definitely really appreciate that. So Damien, uh, same same subject. What is your what's been your experience during the pandemic with uh, substance abuse and recovery? Well, uh, one of the things I noticed is, um, and this is like in a non-professional setting. Um, so I just, just through my personal network of people that I know back home and here, um, a lot of people have been just struggling in general, you know, with depression and, and all kinds of things start to come up when, yeah, you're isolated, you, you're not in public, you don't have distractions, you know, like work and, and, you know, you're at home. And so a lot of times, uh, a lot of my friends, including myself have, you know, relapsed into old habits, you know, just out of boredom, if anything. And, uh, so what I, what I did is I started my own men's group and, uh, you know, I kind of just started it as an experiment, just like, Hey guys, I'm going to start a zoom meeting. Anyone who needs to talk, I'm always available. And, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. I thought, you know, a couple people might show up. I think the first 10 minutes that I posted that, that I had like 30 people sign up and, uh, which was shocking to me. That's amazing. Yeah. And, um, and these are, uh, I have a lot of addiction counselors in my men's group, uh, professional therapists, friends from back home, friends from here. So it was really, what it illustrated to me is that people are struggling all over the place and that we all kind of share our struggles, you know, we, even though we all live in different places and have different careers and different paths that we're on, 
um, we're all struggling with a lot of the same things and to be able to, so I have a different perspective about the online thing, right? Um, in my experience, what, what I noticed is that I, with the men's group, we've been able to bring people together from all over the country and talk about things that we all share instead of just our isolated communities. And, and that was really surprising to me because I agree with Brian and Monica, like some of these things in person, it, it's, it's just a different feel, you know, when you can sit in front of a person and look them in the eyes and, and there's all kinds of different like nonverbal stuff that happens when you're in a conversation with somebody. And so in my experience with the online platform is that even though it's different, it might not be as effective uh, the availability, like some of these guys are hard guys that uh, might not show up to meetings, you know, um, and to have them mix cultures and mix different groups, you know, like people out here, people from Philadelphia, totally different cultures. Um, but seeing them come together and really talk about all the things they're struggling with, including addictions, has been like really, really healing. And to like be a part of that and to just see that happening um, is really amazing. And it's really why I want to do this work because I see how even the smallest little seed can really expand and help. And now these guys are actually communicating outside the group and just being there for each other, like, you know, like talking to each other and they don't even know each other. They've never met in person. And so that gave me a little bit of a different perspective about the online and the benefits of it. So that, that's my perspective. All right. Yes, please. Yeah, <clears throat> Damien was just saying, too, that's been one of the little niches and, and kind of carrots out there is that people can attend meetings from all over the world. And so we've, we've done, went online and found all these meeting lists and people can attend meetings in Australia. And just it's been pretty neat and kind of allows them to see. I think sometimes people think, you know, these meetings or whatever particular group they're going to is just this group of people or just this town. But when they start to see that there's people all over the world dealing with the same challenge and they can get support from from some pretty unique places has been has been one of the upsides. Yeah, the. No, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that. How how we marry sort of the uh, the advantages of in person and the advantages that that the miracle really in, in so many ways of the internet, uh, you know, to kind of give us the the best of both. Uh, we haven't had in studio guests for a very long time, but we're loving the Zoom too because same thing. We can get people from everywhere and and people that don't have to necessarily come over here. So, you know, I'd like to maybe kind of expand a little bit. Uh, if there's more expansion to be had with what uh, Damien just said, I know that um, this is an issue. Substance abuse is an issue. It's I've, at least four generations in my family. And um, and I, so I, I read a fair amount about this and, and do. And uh, one of the one of the issues that um, I see coming up is the, the, the issue of connection. And the importance of connection in um, in substance abuse, in in treatment, recovery from substance abuse, and I just wonder if any if anybody else want, can talk about that. And I know we're starting, I I think anyway, to emerge from the pandemic. So I, whoever wants to take that one, I just you know, talk about the importance of connection. All right, Brian, <laughs> sorry, I'll pick. <laughs> uh, yeah, like what I mentioned earlier, I think. A connection, whether it be in the therapeutic element or the, you know, the treatment community in the public is connection is one of the biggest pieces. I think we tend to isolate ourselves, you know, socially and mentally through addiction and we get pretty lonely. And, you know, 
connecting with other people is one of the biggest pieces we need to do, not just in whether it be self-help groups or treatment, but just connections with positive, you know, other humans in general, whether that be playing music with somebody, whether that be playing Frisbee golf, having lunch, um, but also the, you know, the, the self-help groups as well. You know, um, it can be a pretty lonely place for people when they've decided to do something different and to address their addiction. It's a very lonely spot. Many people have already lost connection with their families, with their loved ones, with their friends, and they're they're feeling very lonely and really unsure of how to how to make connections. And as you know, I think for most of us, even just making friends as adults is an awkward experience anyway. Like if, if, even if you're a healthy person, you're like, oh, I want to make a friend. Great. Where do I do that at? Right. So, you know, some of us would maybe join a cooking class or a music thing or find a common interest um, for a lot of people at the end of their addiction or beginning of their recovery aren't even aware of what their interests are yet. So, you know, luckily they have one common interest, getting and staying clean, hopefully, uh, but helping them broaden that perspective in um making connections with other humans. There's been, you know, some additional studies on the importance of connection. So I think a lot of us are familiar with the, the rats that would step on electric grate right. and yeah. take cocaine until they were dead. Um, there's been additional studies on that. that If you add a little happy mouse uh, part of that and give them an opportunity to go be social and have toys and, and spend time in that environment, they don't always just step on the grate and take the cocaine until they die. They choose to be in this social, healthy environment instead. So there's, you know, there's a, having a connection with other people is valuable. Well, I also think that part of it is the fact that we've elevated the idea of rugged individualism a little bit too far. You know, we are designed for connection and, you know, it's a shame that, you know, we've all grown up thinking that we need to be Superman. So a lot of heads bobbing on that. Um, so I'm just wondering if anybody would like to uh, like to follow up. Yeah, Damien. Yeah, so just to add to that, um, I think one of the things, or at least through the men's group that I'm noticing, is uh, just like how heavy a burden shame is. And that's something that's really, like, important to me. Um and how heavy that can be to carry by yourself. And one of the things I noticed too is in being in a community or being in a group, um, it's really healing to realize that you're not alone in what you're struggling with. And I think I can speak for myself that, uh, yeah, we all think we're alone, even though I just said we. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I think I think I can speak for everyone. And yeah, when we're when we're struggling with things, whether it's addiction or any of these kind of things. Um, we feel like we're alone in our experiences. And one of the benefits of being involved in community or group, AA, any of these things, men's groups, women's groups, is that you get to hear other people's stories. And for me, it's like learning vicariously. Like when you know that like you're not alone in your struggles, it makes you feel less isolated right off the bat, you know, knowing that like, wow, someone else is actually experiencing this. And then to be able to sit and have conversations with those people and get ideas um, is really healing. And I've seen, um, not to share too much, but in one of the groups, someone shared like something really, 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 really personal. And, um, one, I was just impressed with the bravery of like being able to like, wow, we're providing a space where someone feels comfortable to express this. And, um, what happened was I, you know, I just said like, you know, show of hands, has anyone else experienced something like this? And it was pretty heavy. You know, I didn't expect there to be a lot of people, 
And I think like 10 out of 15 people raised their hand. And it was like one of the most healing things I've ever seen because it was just like, wow. And every one of those persons that raised their hand had thought they were alone in that experience as well. And if it wasn't for that person's vulnerability and speaking about it, they would have probably kept that to themselves for the rest of their life. Some of them have never said this to any human being in their lifetime. And to see that connection and like feeling that it's okay that I can share this and that, that release of that weight and that burden of the shame was like one, probably one of the most powerful things I've ever seen in my life. So I think, again, the importance of having community is, is really valuable for those reasons. All right. Yeah. Th- thank you very much, Damien. That that's that was a beautiful, beautiful sharing. And Monica, I wonder if that's something uh, that connection with to shame and then I guess the healing effect of being with others and sharing that from your standpoint, from your psych- standpoint in psychology, how that plays into these other issues. Yeah, so I, I could probably spend two of your hours talking about <laughs> attachment and attachment traumas and how important that is. And just to, to speak to what Steve said, um, we're hardwired for connection. That is, that's in our brains and in our, our biology to connect and to want to be with other people. And so having that, you know, having times of isolation, either because of shame or trauma or, you know, other other life experiences, depression, anxiety, you know, I've, I've seen um, people sharing in different ways that, you know, the pandemic has increased their anxiety, they don't want to go out still, they don't want to go out, they don't want to go to the stores, they don't want to go out to dinner, they're just, it's just too much, it's overwhelming. So a small amount of anxiety they may have had before has increased. And then I think the isolation then compounds that even more significantly and i've i've seen some really exciting things right so we've been in this zoom format for the last year in classes um, and we got permission for um, one of my smallest classes this term to have a couple in-person sessions and it has just been a really powerful experience to watch how the students are able to respond to each other differently in that in-person setting. Um, Damien's been a part of that class and, you know, we meet inside with masks, outside, um, being able to, you know, look at body language and look at facial expressions, which you only get a small portion of on Zoom. And there's just a much more organic and natural process that happens when you're in person where one student will say something or I'll say something and then they'll respond. Whereas when you're you're in a Zoom format or in this online format, there's this there's this lag where someone has to unmute or you know you have to call on someone to get them to respond to something or right and in a in an in-person environment, the brain just responds very differently to those connections and to those relationships. And I think, you know, speaking again to what Damien and said about being able to struggle with something together is really powerful. And I, in, in, in this particular class, it's a second level helping skills class. I've just seen the power of the support the students are able to give each other in that process of struggling through hard concepts and struggling through practicing new skills that are uncomfortable or um, really you know new to them. And uh, it's just a really that that connection piece is also such a powerful part of learning and learning how to be do something different and try something different whether that's in school or in recovery or in you know trying to do something different with a mental health a different mental health challenge with depression or anxiety that those relationships that help us do that are a really really important component in that healing process 
we're designed to share. No question about it. And I was going to say, even primitive cultures realized that cooperation was much more important than competition. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and just working together to um, support one another, just to, you know, raise families, raise children, that, that uh, community approach is uh, much more effective than trying to do that in isolation, where then stress increases and worries increase. And there's this then competition for resources um, and availability that breeds fear rather than connection. Mm. Yeah, and on kind of a bigger over umbrella type thing, is one of what I've noticed as community support meetings start to open up a little bit, is uh, I think many of us are realizing things we took for granted, right? They're actually having a sense of joy and excitement to just be around other humans. Where I think a lot of us get to a place in our life where we have work and friends and family, and we're like, man, I just want, I just want some time alone, right? And that kind of has shifted, right? To uh, like I took for granted the the value of being in the, in the same space with another human, right? With another person that cares about me or that I care about. Um, and so there's just a different energy and a sense of joy. So it's nice to see that starting to come back. And so, uh, Brian, I wanted to ask you this this question: Do you have a, a particularly um, touching, moving, proud? A story that you can share with us, obviously with appropriate anonymity, but I was wondering, I think our listeners might really, really love to hear something like that. It pertains to someone doing well in this current environment or personal well, story? <laughs> hey, I, I, I would just say what, yeah, I mean, if just, just, just whatever pops in your head, a, a story you can share about someone who's going through this process or has achieved something or. Yeah. Um, so. I, I was working with a, a gentleman who um, had some time in recovery uh, prior and had, had found his way back to addiction for quite a number of years and um, didn't own a smartphone, didn't own a laptop and had no experience with technology whatsoever. And obviously we were doing everything on the phone for him. So we were just doing it on a hard line phone. And uh, we talked about how this is going to work during this pandemic for him and what his options are. And so over a course of several, six months actually, uh, he kind of walked through the fear of getting a smartphone because he had never had one of those. Um, started that process, uh, got himself a laptop, went to his first online meeting, um, started doing therapy online and has built uh, a community of, of 20 or 30 men, not only around the country, but around the world that he communicates with on a weekly basis, um, has sustained his sobriety for about 10 months now and has, you know, really built relationships with people all over. He even ultimately ended up building a relationship with an online sponsor who came from four states away to meet with him last month and uh, started recept. So, you know, it's not impossible to to make this journey, even when you're really behind the eight ball, uh, like he was with never using anything beyond a flip phone. So, uh, you know, there is hope that this process is effective um, if, if we kind of take the right steps and support people in the right way. 
All right, great. Thank you very much uh, for that. I want to move into the into the direction of sort of the COCC programs uh, themselves, um, and so I think. I, well, I, I guess I'll just say one thing to, to, to start that off. The, those of you listening who, uh, you know, can maybe see yourself wanting to look into this, or explore this, um, Monica, for those folks, uh, what are some what are some things they can be thinking about? What does COCC offer people who are listening to this thinking they may want to do this great work? So I think uh, there are multiple pathways um, that, that folks can take. For the Human Services Program, we have primarily three pathways. <clears throat> we have the Certificate Program, um, which is a two-year program, which has the classes that um, both the state-required classes for folks to move toward um, getting certified um, as a certified alcohol and drug counselor. I have to get my acronym right there. And... Uh, and the classes that the agencies in the community um, have indicated folks need in order to be successful in the field. So, um, for example, process addictions, which talks about behavioral addictions, um, was a class that I had some graduates, some students that had graduated say, you know, what I'm seeing is a lot of my, my clients are giving up their substances, but they're replacing it with gambling or um, pornography or shopping or, you know, these other behavioral processes um, that's taking the place of, right? They're using those behaviors to numb. So we've added some of those classes to support that process of, um, of what, what are people going into the field really going to need. So there's a certificate pathway, which uh, supports people at the level one for their certificate or for their state certification. The associate's degree supports people at the level two. So it means that they're able to become a supervisor in the field and the, the state minimum requirements are an associate's degree um, plus a certain number of hours in the field. You have to have 4,000 working hours in the field. And then the other pathway, which is the pathway that Damien's in, is uh, a more general pathway where students are able to take some of the classes in the program that are interesting to them, um, either personally or professionally, that give them a sense of, because often we hear, and I hear this a lot from folks that are taking psychology classes, they say, well, I want to be a counselor. And our psychology classes are amazing, but they're really focused on research. That's they're gearing folks to go into a research pathway, a PhD pathway predominantly. Um, we have amazing faculty in that program and um, they, none of them are clinical. They're focused on the brain. They're focused on social psychology. They're focused on um, studying primates. Uh, so COCC has this unique opportunity for folks that think they want to become a counselor to take classes in the program to say, does this really fit me? Is this really where my interest is um, before they continue on with a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and then decide, oh, wait, I don't like this touchy feely stuff where we talk about feelings because that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> and so it's, I think it's a really for me, it's a fun way for, for students to really kind of dip their toes in and say, is this really what I want to do? Uh, 
And I've had students do it both ways where I had a student a few years ago, he took an ethics class and he says, oh no, this is way, this is too much for me. I, I really want to do research. And, and that's great, right? He got to discover that really early on in his education um, where other students take many psychology classes and like, this isn't really quite fit right for me. I really want to do something that's focused on helping. And, uh, and so this, this program or classes provide that opportunity for folks to be able to um, figure that out uh, early in their educational, their educational process. All right. Great. Yeah, thank you, Monica. And Brian, I know uh, you may have to leave a little early, so I want to make sure to get it, get, uh, with you on this one, a couple couple of questions. Really, one I I know both you and Damian are on uh, a second careers or or something similar to that. In and uh, so one question is: Are most of the other students that, that are in your programs in in a similar situation, um, having having been out in the world and worked and maybe built a career uh, before getting into these programs? Uh, and then another one you mentioned earlier, Brian, that it's a challenging career. And I'm wondering if you can speak to a little bit about. Uh, you know, the, the process of going through the classes and the courses and what you do to get there? Um, so with the first question, I would say yes, that many of the people who end up as a, you know, strictly an SUD counselor are essentially on a second career for the most part. Uh, there are a lot of young people coming up um, that might not have necessarily had a career, but just kind of odd jobs and things like that. They got clean early because there's this unique uh, phenomenon that happens with substance abuse treatment, and it's this level of identification. So the people wanting to be treated or needing to be treated for substance use find high value in the fact that the person treating them has had some history with substance abuse, which is odd and unique, right? Because someone with bipolar isn't necessarily looking for a therapist to bipolar, right, to treat them. And I think it's just, it kind of stems from the 12-step communities and things like that, this level of identification. Um, and a lot of people that get clean and go back to school, it just seems to kind of be this natural course that they're like, oh, I want, I enjoyed helping people over here. How can I do this for a living? Okay. Um, so, so a lot of people in our profession have a history of substance abuse and recovery. So therefore, you know, they've done other things prior to coming to that. Um, the second question is for going through the school, um, the COCC program uh, really prepares people really well uh, for this job. So I've, I've worked with a lot of people who have gotten their education in different formats and in different places. And uh, I think the people I see coming out of the COCC program are much more well-equipped and aware of what they're getting themselves into by the time they get themselves into it. Because uh, I think we all, myself included, uh, start out with, I want to help people, right? And that's going to be awesome. And I'm going to see people flourish. And uh, you don't realize that there's a lot of setbacks, uh, a lot of stress, uh, a lot of paperwork, um, a lot of things that come along with this type of work. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I think it, you, you have this image of what being a helping professional is going to be, and then you become one, and it's a, it's a little bit different. There is the rewarding pieces to helping people, and there is the rewarding pieces of all of that, but there's so much other. There's another half to that as well. And right. I think Monica's program really prepares you for that. as It's, it's a longer program. It's really thorough. 
um, and she challenges you and all of her <laughs> professors challenge you uh, regularly to um, not just look at the content of what you're being taught, but to look inward as well throughout the whole program. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Brian. And uh, Damien, I know you're, uh, or correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're not necessarily focusing on the substance abuse recovery, at least at this point in your in your process. But what I'm wondering, going through this, are there opportunities to to work with you know local uh, clinics or uh, practitioners in 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 the process of moving towards uh, your goal of becoming a, a licensed social worker? Yeah, I think, um, and in in this program specifically, uh, I guess the the end result is to get into a practicum where you're actually like interning at a at a facility and getting that in in um, like on the job experience type of thing. Um, the thing I the one thing I wanted to talk to about the program too, just to add this is uh, just because I'm kind of taking a different approach is that yeah, uh, yeah the level of of skills that you're learning um, and like what Monica said. Um, I was majoring in psychology and I started to realize quickly that like as much as I love psychology and I love research and I love the science part of that, um, I wanted to learn how to help people better. And uh, with my history with uh, wilderness therapy, um, I was taught a lot of skills without really knowing the root of them or where they came from and the importance of them. And so the beauty of the program is now I'm learning these skills in a, in a way more proficient way. And, and then even I, you know, I still have relationships with the therapists that I worked with and they've expressed that the skills that I'm learning now are like graduate level and that they're shocked that we're learning such high level skills in a community college. And so that's really awesome for me because that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for tools, you know, something that can help me be better at what I do and what I'm going to do. And so being in Monica's class, like I feel really, really prepared to move on to the next step. So the next step for me is going to be more along the lines of what you asked about. I will be doing a lot of like internships and practicums and things like that. That's a lot of my program at Portland State will be part of that. And so I feel really comfortable and confident because I've been doing it this whole time. I've, I've, I've been it's almost like two years now that I've been doing these classes Um and so I feel really, really like not ahead of the game, but I feel really comfortable being in these things where I could sit with a person tomorrow and I learn how to listen and I learn how to communicate in the proper way. Um, so I think that's a huge um, advantage going through this program is that I feel like people will be really, really prepared for that next level, whatever that is, whether it's an addictions counselor or a counselor or a social worker or anything like that. So. I don't know if that answered your question, but oh, that it, 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 yeah, Monica's got a huge smile on her face. I think I can speak for that. that answered the question beautifully. <laughs> it really did. Yeah, thank you both very much for that. Um, and so, uh, I guess Monica, we're we're going to have to wrap it up here pretty soon, but not right away. Uh, so I'm just wondering a, a little bit of nuts and bolts. Um, you know, if people want to want to get involved, want to explore this program, or how would they do that? Are there prerequisites? Uh, sort of the some of the nuts and bolts kind of stuff. Uh, We're an open program. People can start any term. Um, Some of the prereqs include writing. Um, In fall term, we have an orient. Well, every term except summer, we have an orientation for human services class. That's a great introduction. Uh, If they have specific questions, they can always email me. We're not yet doing in-person advising meetings, but I'm I'm available via email, uh, which 
mvines at coccc.edu. I know that's really fast on the radio, but that's also available on COCC's website. And if they were to just type in addiction studies or human services, that information would come up for them. And um, but but really, someone could start any term uh, that they wanted to to get to get going in the program. All right. So, um, yeah, we're going to need to leave it. Does anybody else have any any burning desire to add anything that you wish you had said or think would be valuable for folks? Well, I just want to add up to what Monica was just saying. I, there is a very high need for more substance abuse professionals um, in our state and in our community. Uh, so if anybody's thinking about going down that path, I'd encourage you to, to talk to Monica and see if that's a good fit for you. Um, because we need more counselors. Uh, there's definitely a skewed number of people for the people seeking help and the people offering the help. All right. Thank you. Any, anybody? Yeah, I probably, I'll, I'll add to that. Just I probably get emails every other week from pro- different community providers saying, hey, I need someone at this level. Do you have anybody that you could recommend or that you could send my way? Um, I mean, it's yeah, there's definitely a need in the community for people that are interested in helping. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, all of you. We really appreciate it. Monica Vines, uh, head of the Addiction Studies Human Services Program at COCC. Uh, Damian Cusimano, uh, a current student about to graduate in June and move on to Portland State for a Bachelor's of Social Work with the goal of ending up with a Master of Social Work. And um, Brian Hodges, a double graduate with high honors from the, C- the COCC programs who's uh, working at... <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome, Brian. <laughs> working, <laughs> working at COCs. I mean, I'm sorry, at Best Care Treatment. Thank you both very much. Uh, this has been a great interview. Uh, we really appreciate your time. And congratulations, Monica, for a great program. And really, COCC. My daughter went through the nursing program and came out knowing more than a lot of people with a lot more, quote, you know, formal education than she did. So way to go, COCC. Thank you all very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and our program schedule, please visit kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.